0: Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and the good news that we have been given. We were dead and you made us alive. We stood guilty and condemned, and you sent Jesus to become sin for us, to bear our guilt and pay our debt. Father, keep us from falling into the assumption that the gospel is just for the lost. As we hear your good news again today, would you grow us up and sanctify us? On this day that we remember your Holy Spirit poured out, would you make your people zealous witnesses to the gospel again? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 All right, go quickly with me. We're going we're to go quick and review from verse 6 to where we are today and through our text. So verse six, which we covered last week, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, that's verse six, walk in Christ. In him, you are um, rooted and built up and we are to be abounding with thanksgiving, that's verse seven. And remember that abounding with thanksgiving is not an exercise in weighing the pleasant blessings against the unpleasant blessings things the bitter providences of god rather this thanksgiving this abounding in thanksgiving or with thanksgiving depends only on our having received christ christ is our reason for thanksgiving paul then charges in verse 8 that you see to it that no one takes you captive or plunders you remember that is i'm um, saying you don't become the plunder of these folks you don't become the spoil the ca- the captive of these folks with philosophy and empty deceit. And the argument, remember those double puns from verse two and verse eight? You may not remember. You'll have to go and listen to it again if you don't, but I'll remind you a little. In verse two, he says, you have love, agape, don't fall for the empty deceit in verse eight, apate. He's like using that pun to show you have love, don't, don't fall for that. Um, you have full assurance, plerosophia, don't fall for the philosophy based on human traditions, the philosophia. Don't, you got these puns to say, you have love and full assurance, don't stoop for these other things. You have Christ, don't stoop for anything less. God the Father is eternal, He is invisible, 1 Timothy 1.17, and yet in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then we reach the climax in verse 10, we are told that you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. And remember, this is not just like a jar sitting on a beach being filled, you know, scoop of water and fill the jar. Full to the brim. It's not like that. It's more like a jar thrown into the water, into the ocean, consumed. You are full in Christ. Um, the jar that's sitting on the beach with full of ocean water doesn't even begin to capture the surpassing greatness of the ocean that fills it. But when we think of it in terms of that jar being filled by being consumed or had by the ocean, now we see there, there's a greatness here, a surpassing greatness. So we've been filled in Christ. Um, and so we think of our being filled more in term, and this is perfect for the day of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. We are we think of being filled more in terms of who possesses us, not uh, more so than in terms of what we possess. So in Christ, you we are circumcised. Your body of flesh has been put off. Verse eleven. Why is Paul talking about circumcision in the new covenant? He is showing us that. Old covenant circumcision corresponds to new covenant baptism. We'll talk about that a little bit. We have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ by being buried with Him in baptism, verse 12. In baptism we are buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Our body of the flesh is put off and Christ is put on. And that is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this isn't our own doing. This is the operation of God, the working of God, verse 12 in Colossians 2. We did not assist in this operation. How do we know that? Well, it says we were uncircumcised, or in other words, we were dead in trespasses, verse 13. God brought us to life, just like he brought Jesus to life from the dead. Verse 13, there was a legal handwritten record of debt standing against us that God nailed to the cross. Verse 14, this setting aside of the legal handwritten record of debt disarmed our enemies and the enemies of Christ and put them to open shame. Verse 15, so with that laid out, let's jump into verse Uh, Verses 11 and 12. Let me read those again. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. The operation of God who raised him Christ from the dead. The reason Paul is talking about circumcision in the new covenant is because he is showing us that old covenant circumcision of the flesh corresponds to new covenant baptism. And he's reassuring these Colossians, you, are, you, you bear the sign and seal of the covenant. You bear the sign and seal of God's righteousness. Paul has already established Their position, our position in Christ. And so here he is continuing the argument. He's continuing the argument. Men and women alike in Christ are circumcised. That sounds funny, I know. It sounds funny for obvious reasons. Um, But Paul is talking about the circumcision of the heart. Paul is talking about the circumcision made without hand. And so we're told that we were circumcised with, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, this is a circumcision of the heart. Now, that begs the question, in my mind at least, is this circumcision of the heart a new expectation in the new covenant? And the answer is no. It is not new. It's not new. For the new covenant. Circumcision of the heart. Was always the ex- expectation. Under the old covenant. Now it's interesting to think about. Why God chose an outward sign. That only men could bear in their bodies. Even while the expectation. The circumcision of the heart. Was God's expectation for men and women alike. Why Why might God have done that? And I think at least one of the reasons. Um, that God did that. In, in, I believe is He was showing a woman's standing as a daughter or as a wife, a woman standing in the covenant as a daughter or as a wife was dependent on their head. It was dependent on their father or their husband. In our modern culture, that can maybe sound demeaning or belittling, but it's not at all. Um, And if we assume that it is, let's just zoom over to the new covenant and remember that we collectively, the church, are the bride of Christ, completely dependent on our head, right? And so in the old covenant, I believe is probably why um, God gave this temporary sign that only applied outwardly to men, but was expected for everyone. Um, And... The church now, the bride of Christ, has been given a new sign and seal to replace circumcision, that is baptism, but the picture of our dependence on our head is not diminished. We depend on our head, our, on our father, on our husband, right? Collectively, men and women now depend on our husband. So to be clear, circumcision was no less a picture of a man's dependence on the life of another in the Old Covenant. Circumcision was this picture of the cutting away of the flesh, but that picture was a a picture of cutting off a man's progeny, cutting off a man and a wife's now, right? A cutting off a man's future and a wife's future. And it's saying, I'm leaving all of this in your hands, God. My future is in your hands. And it's fitting that God gave this sign to Abraham, who became the father of many nations. Abraham, who was really, really old and did not have children. But God promised a child, promised children. And so that circumcision is is a man being cut in half. Cutting this covenant with God and saying, All of my future is in your hands, God, not mine. So unfortunately, too many folks are under the impression that old covenant um, that the old covenant was mostly all about externals, as if God only cared about external actions or mostly cared about external actions, forms, rituals, without much, if any, regard for. The heart, or we could say regard for faith, but that is not that is not the case. From the very beginning, God has been after the hearts of His people. I want you to listen to um, these passages. I, I think I'm going to just read one to you. There's a whole bunch of them, but I'm going to leave it at one. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verses five through nine, it says this: "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul." with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let me read you one more scripture. Deuteronomy 26, 16 says this. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your soul. Oh goodness, let me read you one more. One more, part of one more. Deuteronomy 10, um, the chunk is verse 12 through 17, beginning of 17. You can go read that chunk later. Um, But listen to this part that God says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says this. This is Old Covenant. Listen to what he says here, church. He says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That was the expectation. Now, in the first Deuteronomy passage we read, um, God says, Love me with all your heart. And he goes on and he says, Teach them diligently to your children. Bind them as a sign. Bind his words as a sign on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on your doorpost. Now, in this passage, particularly, we see some external things that later in the new covenant become targets for Jesus, don't we? Yes. But think about what actually was the target of Jesus. What was the target? Was it because, what, was it because they were wearing these things on their foreheads? No, the problem and the target, the thing that Jesus targeted in the new covenant was that they were wearing these things on their foreheads, but their hearts were empty. They put the word of God on their forehead, on their doorpost, on their hands, but their heart was empty. Why was that the criticism? Because from the beginning, God was after their heart. Didn't exclude all the other stuff, but he was after their heart. So heart circumcision by faith in Christ was the expectation all along for God's people, even as they were awaiting the promised Messiah to come. So it's not a new requirement or a new expectation that we get to in Colossians. The saints of old were circumcised in heart, or we could say this, they were born again, or we could say adopted, redeemed, saved, all by faith. In Jesus, the same way we are today. Go read Hebrews. That's what we are taught. They, They get to God the same way we all get to God, by faith in Jesus. And so the difference is that in the new covenant, salvation has come. They were awaiting by faith, following Jesus by faith, a Messiah to come. We are following Jesus by faith, a Messiah that has come. The difference is that salvation has come. It has been accomplished for us in Christ who was born to be nailed to a tree. Who was born to die. At the cross is where the flesh of Christ was cut away. Jesus made a way for us through the curtain of his flesh, Hebrews tells us. We see that pictured in the Gospel of John where the centurion takes the spear and sticks him in the side. And in that rent flesh, blood and water pour forth. Through that rent curtain of his flesh, we enter the most holy place. So God has cared from the beginning about the condition of the hearts of his people. Now, what does the correspondence between circumcision and baptism teach us then? What does this correspondence between the old covenant sign and the new covenant sign teach us? What does it teach us about baptism? What does it teach us about the expectation of circumcision? The sign and seal of circumcision obviously corresponded to the expected circumcision of the heart by faith. The expectation for the external sign was the expectation of the inward reality. The expectation for the inward reality was the expectation for the outward sign. You understand what I'm saying is there is a single expectation here. God's saying, I expect you to be circumcised in your heart. And that means you're going to obey my commands. And at that time, it was circumcision of the flesh, too, for those men. And we see, uh, for example, when Moses is coming back to Egypt, and he's, his wife is uh, in tow, and God says, um, good sir, you've got a problem here. Your boy's not circumcised. He's not bearing the mark of the covenant. And they remedied that situation. Um, So the external sign was the expectation of the inward reality and vice versa. So what I mean is that under the old covenant, male covenant members were required to actually be circumcised in their flesh. They could not skip the circumcision of the flesh while claiming a heart circumcision. God, I'm obeying you in my heart, but I'm going to skip that. No, there was an expectation That those things went together in the Old Covenant. Um, They they weren't allowed. We could think of a New Covenant example, a New Testament example, when Jesus says, come to his disciples, come, follow me. And they say, yes, Jesus, we will follow you in our heart, and we're going to stay at our boats. No, that's not following Christ the way he was expecting them to follow him. So outward circumcision or outward obedience alone was never sufficient. God always demanded, expected, required inward faith, inward obedience. Listen to this passage in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Um, Jeremiah is going on, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. And he goes on and lists some nations. And he says, For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all of the house of Israel, in other words, all of you circumcised guys, are uncircumcised in your heart. I will punish you all together. Romans 2 25 through 29 helps us to understand. What Jeremiah is saying. Follow along if you have your Bibles or on the screen um, so you can track with me here. Listen to Paul. This is New King James Version I'm going to read out of. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision, fancy man, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one inwardly, nor is, I'm sorry, outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, if you are trusting in your own righteousness by the letter, your circumcision of the flesh is as, is as good as uncircumcision. If you are trusting in your own righteousness now what I am not talking about New covenant folks only and excluding old covenant folks or old covenant folks only and excluding New covenant folks. This is the truth for all of God's people if we are trusting in our own righteousness by the letter guess what your sign and seal whether we're talking about circumcision or baptism is as good as uncircumcision or not being baptized but even if you are uncircumcised in the flesh in the spirit and the spirit has circumcised your heart God is pleased to accept you because you are depending not on your own righteousness. Your righteousness that you are depending is the righteousness that is counted to you, that is added to your account. Romans 4, 7 through 12. This is another longer chunk, but pay attention and follow along. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous, as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well counted to who the uncircumcised as well and to make him the father of the circumcised so he's the father of the uncircumcised but he's also the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, that he would be the father of the uncircumcised faithful and the circumcised outwardly who are also faithful in their heart, circumcised in their heart. In other words, Paul is saying Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised in his flesh. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness He had by faith. Now, remember, where does faith come from? Christ. Faith comes from God. The fruit of the Spirit, faith. Faith comes from God. Where does righteousness come from? It comes from the same place faith comes from, Jesus. It comes from the same place faith comes from, God. And so, righteousness doesn't come from us. God wasn't looking to Abraham and saying, you know what, you're a pretty righteous guy. I'm gonna count um, account this to you. I'm gonna give you this sign because you are righteous by yourself. No, Abraham was counted righteous by faith. Just like you and I, you and me, are counted righteous, you and I, by faith. English team. So he says, um, if we were to continue down in Romans, down that Roman road, in verse six, verses, verse four, you'll see that Paul describes those who have been baptized as those who walk in newness of life. And now here we are, full circle, back to our text in Colossians: Walk in Christ. And so in Colossians 2, Paul connects the Old Covenant sign and seal of circumcision and the New Covenant sign and seal of baptism explicitly. He connects them explicitly. Um, this is the place that we see it, uh, the proof text. Here it is. And so just as with circumcision, the sign and seal were certainly not merited, they are not given to point to something actively done on the one receiving the sign, they're not given to point to something actively done by the one receiving sign any more than baptism, or I mean, not baptism, well, that, you see the Freudian slip there, any more that burial is um, something that's given to something actively done by that person. When you are buried, that's not because some, you're doing actively doing something. I'm sorry, that jumbled all up. When you are buried, it's not because you are actively doing something. It's because you have died, and now this is being done to you. You are buried. And Paul says baptism is burial with Christ. Circumcision is done to you. Baptism is done to you. It's not done because of what you do. Um, it's, It's a sign that points to something actively done by another. It's a sign that points to something actively done by Christ, our righteousness. The one who is our righteousness. It's, that sign is pointing to him. It's pointing to Jesus. So that, that is, you receive this sign and it's happening to you in spite of you, whether you're an adult or whether you're an eight-day-old infant in the case of circumcision. Whether you're an adult or whether you're a baby. These signs are given because uh, objectively pointing to somebody else, something else, the work of somebody else, the objective work of somebody else. Abraham's righteousness is not his own. It is Christ. Just like your acceptable righteousness is not your own. It is Christ. We have been buried with Christ and raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Or the, I love how the King James puts it in Colossians 2.12. He says, through the faith of the operation of God. Through the faith of the operation of God. The seal applied by the Holy Spirit was not a result of Abraham's work. It was not a result of Abraham's subjective profession of faith, or Abraham's subjective and sorely lacking comprehension of the fullness of God. It was not pointing to Abraham's subjective and weak ability. It was not pointing to Abraham's ability to articulate the truth. Rather, the sign and the seal are given to point to the objective work of Christ, who was Abraham's righteousness. Who is your righteousness? Who is your child's righteousness? Who is my righteousness? In the old covenant, children, and so this is the tie in in Colossians. When Paul connects circumcision and baptism, that teaches us something about the sacrament of baptism. And that's one of the reasons uh, why a very big reason why we, uh, this, in this congregation, baptize uh, infants um, is because we, we see this circumcision and baptism corresponding, and so that informs how we see baptism. Obviously, there are good Christians who disagree with that interpretation and understanding, uh, but, but let me just kind of articulate it for a moment here. In the Old Covenant, children born into the covenant are born into a rich inheritance of God's promises. And those children were to bear the sign and seal of that righteousness. Not their righteousness. They don't have any righteousness. Their mommy and daddy don't have any righteousness either. Their father, Abraham, only had righteousness because it was counted to him by faith. It was counted to him in Christ. So there's not a single indication then in Scripture that as we move into the new covenant and we transition to a new sign and seal, that our children are excluded from the inheritance of those promises. That's, that's the thing. It's not that we're looking and we say, let's go look at for all the places in the New Testament where children are explicitly baptized. No, it's not that. There may or may not be cases where we say household, but that's, that, that's not where you'd go to make that case. Where you go to make the case is to say, where did children start to become excluded from the promises of God? Where did the children begin to be excluded? And there's, actually, there's not a place where we see in scripture, going to the new covenant, where children of believers are now excluded And so because they're not excluded, we believe, we are convicted that those children should bear the sign and seal of those promises, of that righteousness counted to us by the life of another, by Christ. So we have no indication that our children are no longer counted heirs of promise. um, And so we have no indication that our children should no longer bear the sign and seal of God's covenant with us. That's, That's kind of the argument in a nutshell for why we are convicted here at this congregation to baptize children um i'd love to have any kind of conversations about that if you have more questions which i'm you know that's that's not the end of the discussion so i'd be happy to love to have more conversations about that if anybody would like to later let's keep moving verse 13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you were dead and God made you alive. Have you found that you have kind of become numb to the idea or the language of of being dead and made alive? Have you found that you've you've become kind of numb to that? I think the answer is yes for you and for me and I'll tell you why because I think if we had um, a corpse here today and we were to say a prayer and that person were to come back to life, I think every single one of us would lose our minds and we'd go out of this place going I've got to tell somebody what I just saw. They may not believe me but I know what I just saw and that blew my mind, right? We've become numb to this because that is the description. That is... Actually, what, <laughs> that is a lesser miracle than what happens when people who are dead in sin are reconciled to the holy, holy, holy Amen. God. Amen. And we've become numb to this idea of being dead and made alive, unfortunately. And so um, we want to try and shake ourselves out of that, and I'm going to do that a little bit by talking about what our righteousness is. I don't remember how I got down this rabbit hole the last couple of weeks, a little bit, but um, do you know what the Bible says your righteousness is like to God? In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah uses um, language to describe our righteous deeds before God, our righteousnesses before God. It says this, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, or all our righteousnesses, are like a polluted garment. That pollution is ambiguous in the English language, but it is not ambiguous in the original Hebrew. Do you, how many of you know what that means? you probably looked into that a little bit and you hear a sermon on that and you say, okay, yeah, I've heard that. I know what that means. And if you, I'll tell you what it means if you don't know. That means our garments, uh, our righteous deeds are as a garment stained by menstruation, by menstrual impurity—that's the language that is unambiguous in the Hebrew. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's kind of um, maybe odd to think about that. Why that language? And I think uh, there's a reason for it. Ezekiel thirty-six seventeen also uses the language of menstrual impurity to describe our ways and our deeds in the sight of God. You think. Why not just use the terminology of blood or death or fruitlessness? Um, but there's, there is, all of that, by the way, is in here. And I think that's why he uses the language of menstrual impurity. It's pretty mind-blowing to me. Why the language? Well, consider I, uh, for just a moment what menstruation is, and what that picture's for us in nature. And that biology, that picture for us in nature, informs us. Um, in the law, people who were, uh, women who were menstruating were unclean for this time. They were set out, people who have Bodily discharge, men and women who have bodily discharges were set out ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Now, why the language of menstruation? Well, a um, little crash course, very layman's terms here. You ready? Every lunar month, a woman's body prepares for pregnancy. And if every month, my goodness, God has programmed, designed a woman's body to prepare for life, for fruitfulness, for multiplication. And every month, if there is no seed given, then her life-giving womb sheds, dies. There's a death, and that shedding, that decaying tissue, and that blood are expelled. Every month. So, life goes out. Futile, the futile work of the flesh is made visible. It is made known and it is expelled. And it's pollution. It's polluting everything it touches. And, and so there's that death, that fruitlessness, that futile work that is expelled. In the Old Covenant, like I said, everybody with a bodily discharge, man and woman, not just menstrual discharge, but any kind of bodily discharge, um, or a number of different ones, are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for various periods of time. Why? Why? It wasn't just this idea of hygiene. Was that a factor that God was, you know, kind of using this dual layers of stuff? Sure, maybe. But the point that was made was they were ceremonially unclean. Why? Because life was leaving their body. And it was a picture. Biologically, you couldn't help it. Biologically, you were excluded from God because of your biology. Because of things you had no control over. The futile work of your flesh separated you from God. We depended, the picture of the menstrual impurity is the dependence on the seed, a dependence on the life of another for life. It speaks of our need for life and the operation of, Of another. You were dead. You were rotting. You were wretched. Your righteousness was a bloody garment, a rag soaked in death and the decaying products of our fruitless futility. Over and over, month after month, nothing, nothing, nothing but death. Until there's somebody else who imparts life. You were dead in your trespasses, but God has forgiven you and made you alive together with Jesus. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now think for a moment, whose handwritten ordinances we are talking about? Whose handwritten ordinances are we talking about? What stood against us? The ten words, do you remember how God gave those to Moses? The ten words God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, he wrote those with his finger. The word of God stood against us. That word um, ordinances in in Colossians is the Greek word dogma. We still use that, that word in English. That's, you know, dogma. Whose dogma stood against us? The principles, the unchanging principles, the, the unalterable principles stood against us. Who, whose dogma stood against us? God's dogma, God's word, God's principle, the word, not just the, the, the law of Moses, the law as given to Moses, but that law that was a picture of who God was that law that was in principle describing the nature of God and what was contrary to God. The word that stood against us was the word of God. The word of God. The hopeless debt we owed was the payment for transgressing the word of God. And you know what God did for us? He nailed the word of God To the cross. The hopeless debt we owed was the payment for transgressing the God who is holy, holy, holy. Jesus Christ blotted it out and took it out of the way by being nailed to the cross. God nailed it to the cross. That Thing that stood against us, that ordinance that stood against us. God nailed it to the cross. The canceling of debt that Colossians is talking about is nothing even remotely close to what our government toys with when it talks about canceling debt. They, they talk about canceling debt by fiat. Oh, just wipe the books and start over. Have you ever wondered, why don't they just wipe the all debt, you know, let everybody have more money, right? It's a game. God wasn't playing a game. God wasn't just winking at sin, saying, ah, you know what, just, let's start, let's just start over, forget it, just forget it. No, we had a legal debt to pay. We owed a debt And so God the Father paid a dear price, a dear price to deal with that legal debt that we owed. He gave his only begotten son for you. He gave his only begotten son for you. This is costly grace, freely given. We sing a song called Bonhoeffer's Prayer Today, and I actually... I want to read you at length a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, a teacher. He was a spy. He was part of a group who attempted to assassinate Hitler. He was a faithful, confessing Christian. And he was martyred for his part that he played Because of his faith in Christ. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer beautifully says about costly grace. I'm going to quote him at length. Listen. He says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. He goes on. He says this. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace Is the incarnation of God. Your Father sees your sin. Your Father sees and knows what lies in the dark recesses of your heart. He sees your inclinations. He sees your bents. He sees those things you are tempted with, those things that you believe you have to keep hidden from everybody around you. He sees and he knows. And he sent his only begotten son to become that for you. To become that for you. Your father knows, and he sees, and he sent Jesus to become that sin so he could nail it to the cross and bury it and forget about it forever. Your Jesus, God incarnate, did this for you. Lastly, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. As our Savior was stripped and naked, our Father was stripping and disarming the wicked rulers and authorities. Praise be to God. Again, this is undoubtedly a reference to evil spirits, evil spiritual powers, but it is no less true of those earthly rulers and authorities, including the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, the high priest, Herod Pontius Pilate, and the merciless Roman thugs. All of them were stripped and disarmed and left exposed for what they were, Graspers, grasping for power, grasping for life but empty. Armed with accusation and the power of death, the devil, wicked rulers of Israel, Pontius Pilate, all grasping for what they could not obtain were stripped and triumphed over by the king of kings on the cross. Through King Jesus, our God was stripping the power and kingdom away from the wicked rulers of Israel. He said that. He was stripping the kingdom away from those wicked earthly rulers. He was stripping the kingdom away from the scribes and the Pharisees. He was disarming and dealing the death blow to the wicked and oppressive Roman Empire. Did you know that? That empire of clay was being struck to shatter, and it shattered. At the cross, our Father was paying the penalty for our debt by sending Jesus to become sin for us, to bear the full weight of that sin and God's just wrath. God God sent Jesus to become sin for us, to bear the weight of our sin, but that, what, that's not what made Jesus sweat great drops of blood. What made Jesus sweat great drops of blood was not the weight of our sin, it was the weight of the wrath of God for our sin. Amen. And at the cross, Jesus hung the word of God, pinned, nailed, but Jesus was not hanging on a cross held there by nails. He freely chose that cross. And as a matter of fact, it was Jesus Christ who was holding that feeble cross together. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. That cross, this act was not holding Jesus there we sing the song, you know, the, it was the love that held him there. But think about it, even beyond that, Jesus Christ, who was hanging on that wooden cross with those spikes driven through his flesh, was holding all of that together by the divine word of his power. Through King Jesus, we win. The enemies of Christ were put to open shame as the one who created the earth was placed inside in order to burst forth victorious, making all things new. New man, new life, new creation, new wife. And it rhymes and it's true. New man, new life, new creation, new wife. At the cross, his enemies of Christ were conquered, including you. You were conquered at the cross. You were an enemy, and God loved you and conquered you. And he's still in the business Of conquering enemies. So don't keep that good news to yourself. Spread that gospel far and wide in the cross is where you come to be conquered and where you must come to die daily so that you can rise to walk in His new life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. Let us prepare to come to the table. It is at this table that we come to the body of Christ as the body of Christ. We remember at this altar, at this table, at this funny-shaped cross, we remember and we proclaim Him. We proclaim His death. And therefore, we remember and we proclaim our death In Him, this is an altar call, and it's not just for those of you who have never trusted in Christ. This is an altar call for you, Christian. Come again and die. Come again to Jesus. It it, at this table, it is impossible, impossible not to eat and drink judgment. And death. It's impossible. This is why this altar is a dangerous place to come for those um, who are not trusting in Christ, or for those who come in an unworthy manner. Because those who are proclaiming themselves, proclaiming their own body, or proclaiming their own righteousness, who come in that unworthy state, eat and drink judgment. And death, condemnation and death upon themselves. Those who come trusting in Christ also eat and drink judgment and death. But it is the condemnation that Christ bore for us. It is the death of Christ in which we die. You you die with Christ like a seed that is planted, rooted and growing. A body being built up into a holy city and a kingdom growing like the leaven in that bread right there. So church, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come, and please stand and receive your charge. In Christ, your debt has been paid. You have been forgiven, so go and do likewise. Jesus loved you and freely gave himself to you while you were still his enemy. So go and do likewise. God didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us in our darkness and in our death. So go and do likewise. If you refuse to forgive, Christian, know that you have not been forgiven your sin. If you do not love even your enemies know that the love of God is not in you. So do not stay idle. Go. Go to Jesus. Take others to Jesus. Remember that grace has come to you freely, but it is not cheap. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.